50s and mid-60s. And now it is time for Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a look at how natural processes, with some help from us humans, can speed up the removal of carbon from the atmosphere. Maybe we don't need a high-tech fix to fix the problem we created with global warming. Maybe the answer is right in front of our noses, in the forests and the farms. Filmmaker and activist Lois Robin will be on hand shortly to talk about her film, The Dirt, on climate change. We have a podcast to which you can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com. That's planetwatchradio.com. You can also support us at patreon.com, and that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's kind of a crowdfunding platform for media. And specifically, if you go to patreon.com forward slash planet underscore watch that's how you'll find us uh we'd also like to thank mz michael zwirling owner of ksco for sponsoring this weekly program planet watch and a special shout out to our listeners in columbus ohio and west virginia and other states north especially carbro north carolina thanks to the folks at kcom for putting us on the air and we have short news items and then we're going to go to that interview with lois robbins Rachel, why don't you do yours first? I didn't get a chance to read it, so I can't wait to hear it. Okay. <laughs> Researchers at the University of Michigan have found that without dramatic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, most of the planet's land-based ecosystems, from its forests and grasslands to the deserts and tundra, are at high risk of, quote, major transformation, unquote, due to climate change, according to that study from an international research team. The researchers used fossil records of global vegetation change that occurred during a period of post-glacial warming to project the magnitude of ecosystem transformations likely in the future under various greenhouse gas emissions scenarios. What did they find? That under business-as-usual emission scenarios, in other words, we do nothing differently than we're doing now, in which little is done, Vegetation changes across our planet's wild landscapes will likely be more far-reaching and disruptive than earlier studies had suggested. The changes would threaten global biodiversity and derail vital services that nature provides to humanity, and I should add, to other species as well, such as water security, carbon storage, recreation. And that is according to the study's author, Jonathan Overpeck, who is dean of the School of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. Some of the expected vegetational changes are already underway, which we can see in the latest headlines of fires in California. Fires as well as forest diebacks are already occurring across the West, and that's only expected to increase unless, and that's the big unless, we do something drastic about our emissions. Now, California just passed a law. I believe Governor Brown just signed it, saying that we will go to zero carbon emissions in this state as of 2045 and that will be an ambitious but very worthy goal and other states can follow suit as california is often the one to start these things and maybe we can even up the ante and get to that goal sooner even even set a an earlier goal um 
Yeah, Brown is actually organizing a big worldwide climate summit. I mean, global people from all over the globe here in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, coming up this week. And they had a huge march yesterday. Um, so uh, speaking of zeroing out emissions of carbon uh, as a big part of the puzzle of solving this problem of uh, climate chaos, um, Britain, the UK, the United Kingdom is doing its part. It's actually number one in the world for offshore wind farms. And offshore is kind of where they belong. A lot of people don't like the sight of wind turbines or the sound of them if they're living really close to them. Um, and the wind is a lot stronger and more even out over the flat ocean where you get what's called laminar flow, nice smooth wind flow instead of turbulent flow that comes from hills and trees and things. I mean, wind farms on land, yeah, we, we need to uh, build a bunch of those too, especially in places where a lot of people don't live or see the stuff. I actually like the look of them, but anyway, that's just... But here's the deal. Britain has just built the biggest offshore wind farm in the world. It's off the Cumbrian coast, C-U-M-B-R-I-A-N. And uh, this one has a capacity of uh, about 800 megawatts. That is comparable, just so you know, <laughs> that's comparable to the output of a large coal-fired plant or large nuclear power plant. So, uh, and it's enough to power about 600,000 homes. That is so far the world's largest offshore wind farm. Uh, there are plans in the works now for ones that are going to be about three times that size. And again, the UK has those <laughs> on, the, on the charts for uh, their, their plans. It's even starting to catch on around the U.S., like in the Gulf of Mexico, maybe off the Massachusetts coast. But anyway, stay tuned for more on that. So. And indeed, just a little circle back to the Brown signing um, AB197. Um, they are having, you know, still some dialogue after this law gets passed because states' population is still projected to continue to rise. Our economy is supposed to continue to grow. And so the, the goals have to be even more aggressive or the method to reach the goals have to be even more aggressive to get there. So for transportation, which is a big piece of California's carbon output, um, we have to have a lot more electric cars and mass transit that's electric on the books and people aren't buying them fast enough to meet that target goal in i think it was the year 2045 we were going to zero emissions which is ambitious and by the way electric vehicles uh well if the electricity is all coming from coal burning it's not so great but the point is with electricity you can greatly lower the carbon content of the fuel that goes into your car for instance if the grid becomes much more wind and solar powered then your car is basically wind or solar powered or your streetcar or bus or train or mass transit uh, set of vehicles. So that's the direction we got to go is electric and renewably powered, green powered electric in particular. A study out of Lawrence Berkeley Lab said that uh, right now the current policies we have in place in this state um, will only get us halfway to the 2030 goal. So we're going to have to do something pretty big. However, the good news is we're almost close to the 1990 emissions levels in the state, even though the population's bigger. So we're doing something's right, but we're going to have to really get even more 
innovative and drastic if we're going to meet those targets. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of like, or, or I should say don't like, the use of the word drastic that you just made there. Because, I mean, it's unfortunately... Noticeable. I like it because it's true. I don't like it because it's true. Uh, we have to do drastic things because we are up against a drastic future that unfortunately is probably baked in. And we need, what we need to do is cut our losses, minimize the gloom and doom and damage as, as best we can. And, um, well, okay, the oceans have stored about 93% of all the heat energy that has been put out from burning of fossil fuels for decades and centuries. And the ocean is slowly leaking that heat back out into the atmosphere. So far, it's been in kind of a nice balance. But there are alarming signs that it is going to start really increasing in its release of heat into the atmosphere. And that's something we have no control over. Even if we are totally good, we completely zero out our emissions of carbon right now and even remove a whole bunch of the carbon from the atmosphere right now. The ocean is still going to do its thing. There's nothing we can do about that, except we better study it. And we have a future guest on the show who will tell us about some of the latest on what the ocean has lurking in the depths. And what we can do about it, we hope. Well, uh, you mentioned the ocean, and now we're going to move to the land and dirt. Um, in fact, the soil is a huge sequesterer of carbon and a huge holder of carbon, as we have seen in the Arctic when it thaws, it releases a lot of methane into the environment. Um, our guest, who we're going to introduce here, has uh, created a film called The Dirt on Climate Change, and it does take on what we can do to enhance nature's ability to sequester carbon through naturally occurring processes. So today on the program we have Lois Robin. She has an illustrious career as a movie producer, which means she gets all the resources together and the guests and comes up with the concepts and puts out films, uh, hoping to educate the public about various issues. She's been doing this for the past 30 years. Her three films include uh, one about climate change, also called Climate Change Hits Home Santa Cruz. Another has been about California Native Americans. And she wrote a book called Mamita's House, A True Tale of Tortilla Flat, about a Native American family living in Carmel. She is also uh, very active in the Sierra Club's Pajaro chapter, our local chapter. And uh, she is currently working on other projects in her spare time. So thank you for coming on Planet Watch today, Lois. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm just delighted to be here. It's good opportunity to pass along these ideas that have been, meant so much to me and have been uh, so hopeful and encouraging to me. I'm so glad that you mentioned that hopeful and encouraging as we often hear really scary news and people are hungry for what can we do and what are some of the tools we can use to make things better and move in the right direction. So tell me about what inspired this film, The Dirt on Climate Change, for you. Well, the understanding of the relationship of, of soil, water, and plants has been coming stronger and stronger with me, to me in recent times. Um, and a number of influences have come along that have uh, really, really helped me to go deeply into this and to make this film. Um, I think we start with the basic idea. The soil sequesters p plants because the roots 
of plants are in the soil, and it's largely the plants that do the sequestering. Of the carbon, you mean? Of the, the carbon, atmosphere. yes, yeah. that do the sequestering of the carbon. Of course, some plants do it better than others, but what's happened uh, around the world is what is usually called desertification, that over many, many years, not just any one or two farmers, but over many centuries, the, the soil has become unable to sustain plant life. And the, it has dried up. The term is desertification. And this has happened in all the continents everywhere. And in all the continents right now, there are movements to do something about this desertification and to bring back the, the land and the climate so the plants can continue to sequester carbon. And of course, that's also true right here in Santa Cruz with the giant redwoods we have. Those are the finest carbon sequesterers in the world. And we're still clear-cutting them in places. And that's not a good idea because there could be our biggest help. Well, so, Ro Lois, when you were, uh, and again, thanks for coming on today with us. Uh, when you were first getting around to making this film, working on it, you were telling me that yeah, there's all this talk about removing carbon from the atmosphere using fancy futuristic techniques that we haven't even invented yet <laughs> from, you know, physics and chemistry to somehow suck carbon out of the atmosphere, what a lot of times is called negative emissions. Uh, but, hey, agriculture and green stuff, you know, plants, photosynthesis do this, and, and that's well known, <laughs> that there'd be even way more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere if we didn't have the living green chlorophyll-containing uh, uh, wonderful plants. But uh, your, your idea was let's use agriculture and farms and forests, uh, let's manage them maybe differently in ways that encourage much greater uptake of carbon from the atmosphere. Well, yes, and that's where you have to mention the other important element, and that is the quality of the soil. And the quality of the soil has been constantly eroded over the years by the farming methods. And so now we're here, <clears throat> this <clears throat> this uh, ecological approach requires regenerative ag agriculture, which has a very startling aspect to it of not tilling the land. And it took me a long time to understand that and why that was so. What you want is very deep soil, very rich, porous, loose, friable, uh, <clears throat> uh, nutritive, rich soil. And, um, well, you get that from the insect colonies and the bugs and the mycorrhizal fungi that are in the soil. And when you do tilling, as you will hear in, uh, in, for agriculture, you disrupt all that. You disrupt what's happening. You disrupt the buildup, the, the, the value of these, these uh, uh, elements in the soil and the insects and the mycorrhizal fungi. And of course, if you use, uh, if you use fungicides, pesticides, and so forth, you, you also disrupt it. So this movement includes doing what is necessary to bring back the soil so that the plants can thrive, so that their roots will go deep, so that a great deal of carbon will be sequestered. So the, 
the problem right now is to work on the soil and to increase the, the depth and the quality of the soil in the ways that I've just mentioned. We've certainly heard a lot about, you know, the, the topsoil, uh, the amount of topsoil that's there, though the rich stuff that actually grows plants has been diminishing a generation after generation with the heavy till and heavy pesticide and fertilizer process of conventional agriculture. Even though they are trying to put back nutrients, it seems like the farmers haven't been keeping up with that process. And if you look around this area, we're right in the heart of an agricultural Mecca where the world's you know biggest amounts of lettuce and strawberries are grown as well as other produce here in Salinas and Valley and Pajaro Valley in the Central Coast much of your produce comes from here if you're listening even on the East Coast um, however during planting season you see open tilled fields where all of the soil has been broken up many different times over maybe three different times one for fertilizing and one for planting so what I understand is part of the no-till movement is you don't do two of those tillings at all. You just uh, make a little ditch where you put the seeds in and you don't mess with the rest of the soil and you even leave all the plant material from the last season just sitting on there. Um, and this isn't a new concept, but it hasn't really, I haven't seen it take hold around here. This no-till idea is not happening where we live, maybe um, in the Corn Belt or other places where big row crops are, are made. I'll tell you something rather startling. When I was looking for some uh, for, for f <clears throat> farmers to talk on our film, uh, I didn't find anyone in Santa Cruz County who really was doing no-till. In fact, pe person farm after farm told me, no, we can't do that here. No, we can't do that here. And I began to believe that was so. And yet I talked with Tim LaSalle, who is a man who teaches both in uh, San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly, and also at Chino State. And he said, you must do no-till. And you can do no-till. There are ways, and ways must be found to do it. What usually enables the, the, <clears throat> the possibility of no-till is... Um, It is that you have to do cover crops for some long period of time. Sally uh, Calhoun says she does cover crops for three years before she even thinks about planting because the cover crops enable the insects to build up and uh, the, uh, all the, the soil to build up. And that's the way you, you begin to do it. Yeah, uh, you, we should make the distinction, by the way, there there's are some myths around this no-till thing that, well, that increases, you need even more pesticides because you're not tilling the soil, but that's conventional no-till. There's also organic no-till, which is what we're talking about and encouraging here, where you actually use other, more, much more ingenious natural techniques to control the pests. And I looked at a video, actually, I was trying to educate myself about this topic in preparation for our discussion, and one of the videos was a farmer in the Midwest, and it was sponsored by Monsanto. And I thought, wait a minute, why would Monsanto, the biggest seller of pesticides and herbicides, like the idea of no-till? And I realized it's because you let the weeds grow, and Monsanto's you know, solution to that is you just kill them all with pesticides and let mm -hmm. them sit on top of the soil and to work their way down. They don't really care mm -hmm. that you've used this chemical to do so. So you're right, there's organic no-till, which I think uses mulch. They just, like 
pack down in between the rows huge layers of dead you know mm-hmm. chaff from the wheat or the corn they just let it sit and that kills the weeds whereas monsanto's version is let the weeds grow between the rows and then you just kill uh, them yeah. with chemicals instead of with the tractor which doesn't leave you where you want to be right because you've solved one problem with the soil but you've created another and, and this is the point in the show usually where we announce to our listeners that uh, rather than taking calls on the air which kind of eats up a lot of our hour very fast you can email us and uh, you know have a share a question or a comment with our guest and us uh, you can email us now or very soon in the hour at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com that's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com of course you can email us anytime between shows and so on also but uh, Rachel's watching her computer there uh, as I'm, our not, I'm not looking at that email <laughs> so forget that but oh. I am looking at Facebook so if you want to go on Planet Watch Radio on Facebook and you can message us a question we'll be happy to send it to our guest Lois Robin here on Planet Watch and happy to read it on the air so if you have a question today since we don't have our intern monitoring our okay, yeah. Gmail. Both Tommy and Maya are off uh, doing interesting things today, but hopefully they're tuning in live. Maybe we'll even hear from one of them. And Griffin, our engineer, is uh, poised to play a clip. Uh, Lois just uh, mentioned Sally Calhoun, who uh, is a uh, farmer doing things the right way <laughs> down at Piscina's Ranch, P-A-I-C-I-N-E-S. It's an area down in, uh, what, San Benito County, kind of near the, the Pinnacles uh, National Monument or national park yeah. now. Would, would you like to tell us why you picked her and what, what her background is and why she's in the film? Well, I, heard, I first heard Sally about uh, 10 years ago. Somebody else had made a film 10 years ago, and she was doing, um, she was doing managed grazing even then. And she came up here with that person and with that film and I thought wow this this is really something interesting and since then I've had several occasions to speak with her and she is one of the best educators that I know of about both um, this this whole process she calls herself a regenerator and she says everyone who thinks that they uh, thinks the same about it should call themselves a regenerator and I'm proud to say I'm one (laughs) <laughs> I guess another name that uh, these kind of folks apply to what they're doing is carbon farming. So uh, let's see, Griffin, uh, if you're there, we're ready for that clip. I think it's about five, five and a half minutes. The, the one with Sally Calhoun. This is called The Dirt on Climate Change from the movie by Lois Robin. 7,600 acres mm-hmm. and just seeing what you can do now that you're here. Yeah, a few months after we got here, um, I met a woman who used to woman who used to own this ranch and in fact she and her husband could not figure out how to keep it and ended up selling it to the very developers that we bought it from Mm -hmm. and she told me there was a book I should read called Holistic Management by Alan Savory because she had been practicing holistic management and she said to me if I'd read this book I'd still own this ranch not you and so I said okay and I went home and I read the book and was totally intrigued by the fact that we might be able to change the way we manage livestock on these huge landscapes. Mm -hmm. And we might be able to bring back, for me, the California native perennial grasses were the compelling thing. Because I'd been growing those in my yard for 15 years, and I knew they were gone from here. Mm -hmm. And the idea that they could come back, it's just like this little worm that burrowed into my head and has never left. So that's actually why I became a rancher, was to try and get the perennial grasses to come back. And of course, since then, one thing has led to another. And now we're into pastured meats. We're in the process of taking back our certified organic row crop ground that Earthbound is farming. And we're going to get into farming. And we're, we've planted this vineyard. So it's not just about 
managing cattle to bring back California to perennial grasses anymore. It's gotten much bigger than that, and it's about sequestering carbon and changing the way agriculture works in all of North America to improve soil health. Gap. Well, I was going to read something. A, a, a mere 2% increase in the carbon content of the planet's soils could offset 100% of all greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. Okay, now they're back to the film. Go ahead and keep going. Before you actually put the uh, vineyard in, could, we t could you talk a little bit about how you're creating soil health here? Sure. So we came out here onto the rangeland. We wanted to put in a vineyard, and we found a good site. And we, we were very careful to site it in a place where there had previously been vineyard because we didn't want to plow up a uh, section of pasture land, of rangeland that had never been disturbed with farming. So we found this spot and we knew that once we planted the vines, our intent was never to till again. So we actually wanted to improve the soil health fairly dramatically before we did the planting. So we came through and put in a dusting of compost, just a very, very thin layer of standard commercial compost, and then planted cover crops for a couple of years, things like vetch and clover and some grain crops. And then we uh, used managed grazing and high density grazing with sheep and cattle through those two seasons to, to improve the soil up here. So what we wanted to do was have soil that was alive and could hold water before we started the vineyard. And that was the, that was, so it was a three year process to make that happen. So the idea is it turns out that what you really want to do to improve soil health is you want to grow diverse set of plants. You want all these different kinds of roots in the soil at the same time working together. And it turns out it's really synergistic to do that. So both years we had a diverse cover crop mix. So for two cool seasons, we didn't irrigate it or anything. We just came out before it started to rain and planted cool season annuals and a diverse mix of them. So you prepared the soil for three years, the, the various things grew, the, the soil became healthier. Right, we, yes, we increased the soil organic matter fairly dramatically, which is a real indicator of life in the soil. Mm -hmm. And then you plant it, and how do you plan to, to work the vineyard as it, as it matures? So a couple of things about the design before we get to the working. So if you, if, you, if you notice this vineyard, something looks a little odd to you if you've seen normal vineyards. Normally this wire, which is where the vines would be trained, is about here. Right. Right, so th this vineyard is designed so that the vines grow and they fruit much higher so that sheep can be in the vineyard all year round. So we like to say that the sheep are actually gonna manage the vineyard. So we'll be, it will be set up so that it will grow, hopefully have plants growing all year round, and the sheep will periodically come through the vineyard and graze the, what's growing in the vineyard. And also they will help us to manage the vines themselves because they will graze away all the little suckers which grow up the, up the vines. Which so you're is, gonna let them eat on the, gra on the vines? The, they, they'll eat the little green leaves. Uh -huh. We won't leave them long enough that they start to eat the, you know, the, 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 uh, the trunk. Uh -huh. But yes, they'll do that. And the other thing they'll do is that when the, when the vines come over, if they droop over this way and get low, they'll cut the, they'll eat the ends off. So uh -huh. both of those things are actually done by hand in California vineyards today. So that saves a lot of labor. And we believe based on some trials that our uh, ranch manager, Kelly Mulville, who's really the brains behind this whole thing. He invented this kind of vineyard. He did some trials that indicated that he saved about 90% of the irrigation water over a conventional vineyard. Why is that? Because the ground is covered all of the time. It turns out that when you have bare soil, the, the ground gets much, much hotter and the water just evaporates. The other reason is because we've increased the soil organic matter and because the soil will be covered in the winter, we expect to capture a lot more of the rainfall that does fall, right? It doesn't really matter how much rain falls. 
All that matters is how much rain that you capture, the effective rainfall. Right. So we would expect to have much more effective rainfall and to be able to hold on to that water. So it's a combination of losing less during the growing season and also capturing more. And, we, and he, he also saw increased yields, probably because the plants appreciate the improved soil health. And there's a lot of evidence that the grazing by the animals actually helps stimulate plant growth. Interesting. Okay, so we were just asking about... Thanks a lot there, Griffin. Uh, nice little clip from the film by Lois Robin called The Dirt on Climate Change. And in a few minutes, uh, if we get around to it, uh, we might play a clip from a guy down in that same general neck of the woods, uh, Joe Morris, who has uh, the company Morris Grass-Fed Beef. And uh, But anyway, so uh, Rachel, what do you think there? Did we get any comments flooding in over the We got e some resources from people. Uh, Pauline Seals writes that um, Sasha Lozano of the Santa Cruz, uh, let's see, uh, RDC, is working with farmers in Pajaro Valley to increase cover crops. And he's a great resource for information. Also, the state has a healthy soil and climate smart farming programs. So California sounds like it's getting on board the Resource Conservation District has always been out front on this one, and it sounds like they are starting some statewide programs to try to help farmers. Um, it's never been the kind of thing where farmers like to be told what to do by the state or the government. They want resources so they can make their own decisions and use the best science to make those. And often there's a, there's a herd mentality where if everyone's doing it, you feel like that's the right thing to do because you look at your neighbor and for the time being, it's working for them. So there's a lot of, if we can get the, everyone on board with these practices and there's incentives to do so, then there's a wholesale shift to different practices. But it seems to take kind of a paradigm shift sometimes to go to something as radical, seemingly radical, even though this has been around for 10,000 years, no-till agriculture is not new. It's not something that you know these scientists just invented it's just they're trying to get people to go back to rediscovering it for different reasons for the taking carbon out of the atmosphere which was not a problem 10,000 years ago they needed to solve right Lois it was not even a glimmer in their eye yeah well you know another aspect of all this uh, is what Lois sometimes calls rotational grazing and, uh, you know, this is the interaction of animals with Joe, the plants was, and the land. I, I was just ready to bring up managed grazing. Okay, because good, they, good. That's <laughs> the other aspect of it. And Joe, Joe Morris, I guess you have, a, a, you have him talking. We'll, are we going to listen to it? But, yes, he's a master grazer. And he, um, uh, he, what, what that really means is that he has... Um, uh, he has cows on his property. He has the the small the the the, the female cows, the male and the children, all <laughs> the baby cows, all grazing on the property. So it's a good, happy scene. He stresses that that's important, and um, it, he never allows the grass, or the weeds, or whatever is growing there, the plants, to be cut down more than four inches, and he keeps moving the herd along either with uh, cowboys or with dogs or whatever, so that uh, the, the grass is never completely cut down. That, in that way, it can grow back again, and when it grows back again, it uh, <coughs> sequesters carbon. And he can actually measure, and the people who are doing this kind of grazing can measure the carbon, and they know that they are 
uh, in this process sequestering a lot of carbon and they have figures on that and um and so he says, uh, you know, the cows are happy, the dogs who help him move the animals along are happy, and uh, it's a pretty good situation. And he's, he's shown how on his land, if you actually see it, how the moisture is actually coming back to the land and more of a greater variety and more native grasses, greater variety of plants, and all these things are part of this process. Have you and, been uh, on one of those ranches to see that during the filming of this? film have you seen the yes operation yes you can see it very very clearly in the film you went to visit alone. yes oh yeah. yes we visited yeah. joe and in our last film too and we were we have some wonderful footage uh on the website of from his last film and from from which was climate change hits home because he's right here in the hills behind watsonville mm -hmm. and so he's a local person and he really understands and knows what he's doing and what he's after but i think the important thing is that we we've used local examples but this kind these kind of activities are going on all over the globe right now they're going on in africa in Australia, uh, uh, very much in the uh, Slovakian countries. Uh, they're actually leaders of some of this in the Slovakian countries of working with restoring water to the land. And uh, so even though we lose sight of that, we don't really see it. It's really an enormous kind of happening right now. It sounds like the way people used to ranch before all of the fences went up and the, and the barbed wire they were just cowboys it would keep their cattle moving on a very big range and so they wouldn't overgraze what you often hear is that cows just cows in general um, are cause for climate change that they're releasing lots and lots of methane uh, from their burps and uh, other effluents um, from their bodies because of the way they di digest their food. So well, I the, don't the know if that's offset by the better grazing practices. Is yes, it, uh, it, it is. It is not, this kind of grazing, it's not really a problem. You can read about it in the book Cows Save the Planet by uh, Judith Schwartz. She's a wonderful writer and she takes up that issue very clearly and it's it's really not an issue the methane issue is not an issue with animals grazed in this manner um you mean they don't have as much ruminating that happens or well we'll, well have to read the book i guess it, the, on another the methane show. is really much more from the feedlot situation almost entirely from the feedlot situation and we don't this just there's no feedlots in this kind of grazing you know there is a test farm up the coast in uh, uh half moon bay called tomcat farms and i got to tour it for a whole day and see this in motion there they fence off with electric fencing, huge swaths of hillside and grass, and and then they let them graze there for a while. Then they move them again and graze another area, and they shut off the other part. And you should have seen the cows run for the better pasture. They just <laughs> ran and joyously and began munching this really tall, you know, flowery, what looked not like pasture to me. It looked like um, weeds. Um, but to the cows, it looked like really good, nutritious food, and they were very fat-looking, healthy cattle that looked very, like they said, lots of uh, lean meat was growing on them because of the grass-fed. So that Tomcat farm, that has something yes, to do I with... Yes, I visited Tomcat farm. That has something to do with Tom Steyer, doesn't it? It does. It, yes, it's it's Tom farm. Steyer is... And actually, speaking of other that. farmers doing this and pioneering this, Lois says she got turned on to this whole thing one evening uh, up in San Francisco, she and I went on a road trip to a wonderful talk uh, at uh, 
the Randall Museum, which I think has just reopened after two years of being closed and re, re, uh, remodeled. And it was a guy named John Wick, who is uh, quite a speaker, quite an interesting guy, and who uh, has been... Uh, sort of pushing the envelope on all this. And, uh, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that, Joe. Uh, I was going to mention it myself because it was very significant, the story that he told of how he uh, purchased this useless land and year after year he did this kind of grazing and he ultimately got all the native grasses to come back and I think he, I think he farms native grasses now. And wow. he sells them. But he, and he's appeared several times in Santa Cruz to talk about what he's doing. But when he said that, I, my eyes just opened wide when he told about that was a very significant visit we made up to visit John, John Wick. He, he's definitely a leader. I think he started the Marin Carbon Project. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah. But I think all of this grazing business, uh, Alan Savory was the one who first, who first brought in the idea. He was... Uh, and that came because he was interested in the big predators. And he realized after a time, he was living in Africa, then he was African, that the predators would keep herds moving along so that the grass was never, uh, the plants were never nibbled down to the nubs. And uh, that, that was true here in Santa Cruz County, too. The, we, uh, we used to have elk grazing. And the grazers... They did a good job on, on keeping the land in good shape. And then, of course, they were all killed. And that's one of the reasons why we have cows and sheep now doing the grazing, because we don't have those kind of grazers that were uh, historically here. So it's much more labor-intensive to do this kind of agriculture, and you have to have enough land to grow the amount of beef that you can still make money on. And, you know, often what's reserved for grazing is not very good not considered good soil land already. So a lot of ranchers that you see are in the drier part of our state to the east, in the hills, you know, of San Benito County, not on the coast where agriculture land is, you know, growing lots of high value crops. Instead, you see a lot more cattle to the east um, in pretty dry country where it's just grass and it's not native grass at all. Um, and it's pretty overgrazed and often they have to feed them in the bad parts of winter where there's not enough fodder. So how do you, when the land patterns of ownership are geared toward the kind of grazing we see, how do you convince people who don't have the kind of land that would do this properly to change their whole system when they own what they own and they have what they have? They can't, you know, buy another piece probably. They can't afford it. So well, how do they switch these, this? These many groups and people have com are coming up uh, all the time that are showing that it can be done and uh, it's a very hopeful thing and uh, there are m many examples if you if you even go on and uh, it, little videos are made all the time of different projects that are working and that, and you can just go online and find hundreds of them I know that uh, Ed, um, Ed Shell, who was the producer of our film had to sort through dozens and dozens of little videos made by different people doing this sort of thing in order to come up with the ones that he put into the film. So the point is that they were case studies of people transforming the land. You know, they got what they got, they own what they own, but they're making the best, the better of it by using these techniques to help it flourish in ways it hadn't for a long time, right? 
right? And <clears throat> also, it's important for to realize in our in our film we have examples of local people who are doing things that help with this whole cycle of water, soil, and plants. We've allowed a lot of rainwater to just wash down drains and go right out to the ocean where it's not needed. The ocean is rising. It doesn't need all of our <laughs> rainwater. So it, many people uh, are doing things, are finding ways to keep the rain in the ground where it falls. And anything homeowners can do to add to that is very uh, worthwhile. I know one of the people, uh, his name is Adam Sachs, he's the head of biodiversity for a livable climate. He pulled out his whole concrete backyard and put a garden. He unpaved, he mm -hmm. depaved. The fact that the, the whole uh, world is now paved over with concrete is uh, right there is one sign of uh, why the the world is warming. If you ever go out on concrete on a warm or hot day, you see how very hot it is, unless it's shaded by a tree. I've heard they've developed something called permeable paving, where it's got lots of porous substances. There was a, pa a parking lot in Scotts Valley that said, this parking lot per uh, recharges the aquifer. And I looked at it carefully, and it was only one of three next to the transit center, but it was pretty large. And its uh, surface was porous. It didn't have the same impervious well, yes. paving, you know, asphalt that the other ones do. Well, there's, there's many, uh, there are many uh, products that we already use that are better than concrete. In Boston, I was there for a conference, and I noticed that all the s sidewalks were brick, were made of brick. And, of course, w there, and it was raining, and the, the, the rain was absorbed in the brick. Um, but. Really? And, and the more we can do that, Joe has something at his house that he and Mary, his uh, partner, discovered some time ago. And they've done, it's in the film, you can see how they've gotten water off the roof and gotten it to go into a swale so that none of it is lost and runs out into the ocean. It all goes into the yard. And... Uh, that's a very important thing that people can do. I myself have used decomposed granite instead of concrete for walks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, here where we only have rain a few months of the year, we can, say, we can collect it in barrels off the roof and so forth. But the part impo important thing, both for, for replenishing the aquifers and for uh, enriching the soil, doing the right thing for the soil, is to catch that rainwater and not allow it to run off. So we've talked about agriculture and, and ranching, you know, cattle ranching. We've talked about home gardening and landscaping ways that you individually can help uh, rejuvenate the soil so that it sequesters more carbon, so that more things grow, and the soil itself is enhanced. We haven't talked um, all that much about tri trees, the natural forest that could sequester massive amounts of carbon. Is there, are there efforts underway to re-green the earth by massive planting of trees? I mean, after these fires, there's got to be something done. There's going to be denuded land all over California now. It, to your knowledge, are there big tree planting efforts, uh, you know, with the CCC or the Park Service or anything um, that you know of? Well, um, I, yes. There's, there are trees being planted all over the world. There are lots of trees being planted, and you can certainly never plant too many. Um, at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, we still do have 
clear-cutting of our best carbon sequ uh, sequesterers, the redwoods. And uh, that's something that must be stopped. We can't have that. We need those redwoods, all of them, every one of them. And uh, I noticed there was a fight in our local neighborhood of some folks to save an, uh, uh, an old redwood tree right here, right in this community. Sequoia, they, they sequoia up, tree. What? Yeah, a sequoia tree on the west side of Santa Cruz, yeah, right? Yeah, a sequoia yeah. tree. And they put up a big battle, and they lost with the Coastal Commission, and the tree was supposed to be cut down, and then the person who actually owned the property came through. And he said, okay, I hear your pleas. We will not save this tree. It is a, it's, it's kind of an, a, a badly shaped tree because it was hitting the power lines up above. But anyhow, they called the trimmers and they trimmed the tree. But the carbon is sequestered in, by the girth of that tree. Every year it puts on new girth. And even though this tree was in kind of bad shape from the power lines above, it still had girth. It was still sequestering carbon and it was... And so that one was saved. Actually, uh, <clears throat> I think I got a different tree there mixed up a little bit. But uh, part of your film uh, also involves uh, Betsy Herbert, who is a noted expert on redwoods. And uh, her plea, impassioned plea to save the redwoods, which, as you just stated, are some of our best fastest sequesterers, most massive sequesterers of carbon. And uh, she's in there. And uh, what else might you say about what she talked about in that film? I don't think we're going to get to any other clips today. Well, but, uh, I've just the things that I just said were direct from uh, things that I learned from Betsy Herbert, so I've already said most of it. But it's wonderful to see her sitting there and uh, uh, speaking about them in person. It's like that uh, book, The Lorax, I Speak for the Trees. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, it's good that someone's doing it. We need more of them, and I'm glad to know that there's tree planting programs all over the world happening. That seems to be a really quick way to sequester a lot of carbon is just uh, on all these burned areas, plant massive trees. Sadly, climate change is actually working against us now because in my neck of the woods, the sudden oak death is causing whole swaths of the forest around me to die within a few months. I'm just watching the forest die and I have to cut them down and I'm burning them as fuel, but I can't keep up now because so many are dying. So we have to do more <laughs> so that the drought doesn't kill the trees inadvertently through uh, fungus and beetles and things like that so that we can get ahead of this. It's, it's a cycle that um, humans have set into motions and I guess humans can also set the other way. I mean, he, Native Americans planted for years and they grazed for years properly. We have a lot to learn from the Amamatsun who used to live here about how to manage the meadows and the forest. And in the Sierra, I just came down from the Sierra and there are vast swaths of trees which are dying uh, and it's kind of striking me as a major conflagration waiting to happen. Um, various things directly and indirectly related to climate behind that. But speaking of the whole climate change thing, big question that comes to my mind is we got to always do the math. Okay, how significant is all this stuff we've just been talking about in the overall picture of uh, healing the atmosphere and we can talk about things that are all things that we should do anyway because it makes the environment more beautiful and more healthy but in a carbon 
budget sense. How significant is it? And I know we're not going to get a direct answer right now, but somebody needs to be doing the math on all this regenerative agriculture and everything. And how climate significant is it given what we're up against? <laughs> I don't know if you have any particular yes, thoughts on that. There Lois. are people who have done the math. I'm thinking of, of one person in particular who is a bio, biologist for uh, uh, for biodiversity for a living planet and he came up with a chart and he's figured out all the numbers and uh, it is available probably online but you know what i think that we can go a long way with our own intimate sense of what we know about the earth that this is this is something that uh is is intuitive if you pay attention to the earth and you know and care and are interested and involved with the earth, you can have a certain sense of it that is more important, I think, even than the numbers. You can almost tell that uh, that these things are on the right the right track if you're tuned in, if you're really tuned in to the environment. Good point. And, and your son writes in, uh, who's Daniel, right? Um, your son Daniel is his name, right? Robin, he wrote in and gave us some resources um, that I'm posting on our Facebook page. Oh. One is the Old Growth Forest Network. And he also says, you know, people will put up resistance and question these things over time, but eventually will come around because they want to do the right thing. Nobody wants to hurt the soil. They've just been going on practices they told were the right ones. And, and so it takes time to change people's behaviors. That was the point he wanted to make. Yeah, well, thanks, Dan. And uh, I guess we're coming to the end of the hour, but it's been great, Lois. We really appreciate you coming in on pretty short notice. <laughs> uh, and um, it was, uh, you know, it's, more more better later. <laughs> it's not short notice. It's my whole life. So, <laughs> Well, I only called you yesterday to see if we could get you to come right, on the air. Right. Thank uh, you for taking the time out of your Sunday to share your film with us. And I've posted a link to it on our Facebook page in case people want to watch it. It's not very long. It's 45 minutes or so. The Dirt on Climate Change from Lois Robin. Yes, we've had a great many hits and people keep telling us that it's a wonderful film, that they uh, that it's has so much interesting information. They often listen to it a, a few times, and I think we feel really pretty proud and happy that we made this film. Yeah, well, so now we, you should get a lot more viewers, hopefully, who have been listening mm -hmm. to this show. Uh, we're just in time for a couple minutes of the... Uh, the final, the oddball stuff section of our hour here. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned earlier, I just came down from the mountains, uh, the Sierra. I was up at a friend's cabin at Kirkwood Lake, which is kind of near Carson Pass on 88. And uh, that's at 8,000 feet. And here's a fun fact for you. When you're up at 8,000 feet, which is higher than anywhere down here around Santa Cruz, uh, you are above a third of the atmosphere. Uh, so uh, that means that the sunlight is much more intense. Why? Because even though the air is clear and invisible, nevertheless, it attenuates, it reduces the sunlight reaching you. And in fact, you can look all around at the blue sky. Well, hey, that's sunlight that was going to hit you, but it got scattered all over the place by the atmosphere, and the blue sky is much more intense up at high altitude. And uh, so... You have to watch it more on getting sunburned. 
Uh, and I've lived long enough and had enough experience that I realized, okay, well, I better put shirts on and things and l hats and not be looking directly at the sun as much as I used to get away with uh, when I'm up at 8,000 feet. Uh, and so uh, in, in technical terms, down here at the coast on a peak sun day around solar noon when the sun is at the highest for the day, when it's due south, you'll get about 1,000 watts per square meter. <laughs> Uh, that watt is a rate of energy coming in. About one kilowatt per square meter of sunlight uh, radiation will come in. Up there, at about 8,000 feet, it's more like 11 or 1,200 watts per square meter. And if you were in orbit completely out of the Earth's atmosphere, it would be about 1,366 watts per square meter. That's the constant solar radiation rate at the top of the atmosphere. Almost 1,400 watts per square meter. Uh, another thing is uh, your last chances for looking at the beautiful evening star, Venus, are coming up in the next couple weeks. It's going to be reaching its greatest brilliancy as it wanes into a crescent, which you can even see with binoculars now. And some people with rare, extremely acute vision can actually see it with the naked eye as a crescent. But with binoculars and certainly with a telescope, you can see that Venus is a crescent. And yet, surprisingly, it is at its very brightest, lurking low in the southwest sky. And uh, then you have to the upper left of that, you have Jupiter. And over to the left of that, you have Saturn. And then over to the left of that, in the east, southeast, is the angry orange Mars, still very close to the Earth, uh, about as close as it's been in the last 15 years. And all four of those planets are in a great sweeping arc that traces out the plane of the solar system. So... Um, that's what's going on in the sky, but you're about to lose Venus. Uh, so uh, if you want to see it beautifully gracing the evening sky, you better do it soon in the next couple of weeks. So that's all for now. Uh, but thanks again to Lois and to you, our listeners, and to Rachel and our interns, Tommy and Maya, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> thanks mostly to you for listening. That's Planet Watch for this week with your host, Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. Keep you can an eye. catch our podcast at planetwatchradio.com. And keep an eye on the sky. Thanks bye -bye. so much for listening. See you next week.